Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Boys' homes were worse in the sense that there was nowhere to go. There was no reprieve. There was no, it was relentless. On the streets, it was more cunning. So the way they abused me was by saying things like, you are so talented, you know, like on the guitar, you are such a gifted kid. You've got all these gifts and I was bored into it. You know, like I, I looked up to this fucking idiot. I believed that he was something special. We often talk about the common threads in the backgrounds of the most notorious killers in Australia in the 20th century, namely early childhoods in which they experienced neglect and violence, followed by periods of sadistic abuse in youth detention centres. 
When Glenn Fisher was a teenager, he was placed into the custody of the Derrick Training Centre for Boys in Sydney's Penrith. Derrick Training Centre for Boys has been described in the years since as a paradise for pedophiles. And while that's unfortunately the kind of headline we've grown used to in Australia, there is an even darker element to this story. Derrick, a government-funded centre, was the epicentre of a coordinated pedophile ring. Glenn Fisher has seen several of the worst offenders associated with Derrick convicted, but he's not finished yet, and he joins us to tell us his story. Well, so at the very beginning, I, I remember we lived in like a Christian sort of commune, and I remember my parents getting kicked out. So that's around 1967, 68. In whereabouts? It's in New South Wales, yeah, that's all I remember. It was in Point Wollstonecraft and it was some sort of commune. I just remember that the women used to ch- and men used to chant before breakfast outside this big kind of cabin and the men used to go off on a truck to work. I'm assuming that it was some sort of logging or something to do with the forest and uh, the women used to do arts and crafts. It, it had a religious overture because I remember the minister, he had a daughter that used to collect silkworms and that's sort of a memory I have of the silkworms. And for some reason, I'm not sure of, uh, my parents were kicked out. And uh, we moved to North Sydney in Neutral Bay. So I had three siblings younger than me, two brothers, one sister. Very early, I remember my parents had a guy named Pat Chase. He was uh, a predator. And um, he was my dad's best friend. And from my understanding, there was a bit of children swapping going on. Like I have these recalls of laying on top of his daughters, you know, being naked in backyards and tents and um, I, be, I remember Uncle Pat being there. Does that mean, do you think your father was, was a predator? Yeah, no, he was. He was convicted. And then around 1972, uh, we moved to Mount Druitt. And, and in between all that, I was removed from my parents by docks around 20 times. They just kept taking me and putting me back. My mum was a heroin addict and alcoholic. She was also suffering with schizophrenia. And my dad was an alcoholic at that stage. So for the first seven years, up until about the age of seven, I kept getting removed. Schools and neighbours kept complaining, you know, there's a lot of screaming and violence going on. Every time they came, I was bruised or, you know, hurt in some way. My mum was, uh, um, she used to cook our meal every day. Food was scarce. We didn't get a lot of it. Like I remember we had uh, two wheat picks for breakfast and a Vegemite sandwich was lunch and then a meal. Um, she, she managed to cook a meal every night. She was just drunk when she'd done it. I believe that she tried. She just had so much going on, you know. She's schizophrenic, alcoholic, heroin addict. She she's living with a bloke that's violent, drunk, who's also a predator. She's the one who reported him, you know. So wow. At the age of seven, I came home from school one day, and there was a bull wagon out the front of my house, a, a police car, a, and um, my dad was being taken to jail. He'd been charged with a serious crime, and so that was the day my mother took us and us kids into a place called Lewisham, an orphanage, and dropped us off. And she was put into a place in Ryde, a psychiatric uh, place in Ryde. So, yeah, that's where it sort of began. Yeah, I remember when we got dropped off at Lewisham, my sister sucking on a thumb and sitting beside me. She was very distraught. In fact, she was so distraught that two weeks or three weeks into our stay, they got my mum out of psychiatric care and put the youngest two back with her. Because, I mean, I'm seven and my next one's 18 months younger than me. So, you know, we're talking three, four or two, three years of age. And I, I, I did. I felt um, very protective of my young siblings and tried so hard to look after them as the oldest. My brother and I stayed in that institution. Well, we stayed in there only for about four months. They moved us to a place called Stewart House for respite for two weeks. And then they took me to an orphanage with my brother next in age. We stayed there for the whole duration of my dad's incarceration. 
the time I was there, my mum came and visited me twice and I remember crying and saying, you know, like I'd done something wrong and it upsets me even when I talk about it, like saying, I'll be good, just bring us back, you know, I'll just bring us home, I won't do it anymore, whatever it is I've done, I'm sorry. And uh, But she didn't take us, they wouldn't let her take us. But then my dad got out of prison and visited us and they allowed him to take us, which was insanity. But a week later, he was. we had to go back to my mum because of obvious reasons, you know, she went up in arms and said, you're not minding any of my children. So what happened was dad got out of jail and he got us out, as I said, for a week and then we were returned to our mother. Problem was mum was still living in the same house in Mount Druid in Shelby, but she'd now turned back to partying days. So she was full on drinking and partying and just doing all that stuff. Dad had actually stopped drinking, but he shacked up with the next door neighbour, her and her three kids. And then so they moved up to Hornsby. It's insanity, but he, for some reason, not only was he allowed to get us out, but he was able to go and get uh, with another woman who had three children as well. So when I turned nine, I was abused by my Uncle Pat in our bedroom. That's where the first serious abuse happens. There'd been lots of promiscuity and other things that had happened, but there was a... What do you mean promiscuity before nine? I mean, tell me, you know, what does that even mean? Most people go, what? I remember sitting in a car when I'm around seven with my Uncle Pat and he's, there's, my siblings are in the back, I'm in the passenger side. He's got, he's sitting in a van taking us for a drive. He's got a a, a little book in front of him called Ribold or Rebold, and it's a picture of some kind of pornography. He masturbates in front of us kids into a hanky and so naive am I that I go, oh, wow, what, what was that? And he goes, oh, you'll be able to do that one day. And the other thing I remember was very clearly him and my dad, I remember him, but I know my dad was around the backyard somewhere and his two daughters in the backyard in a tent being naked and me being asked to lay on top of them. And I, I don't know if they were taking photos or what was going on. I just remember that specific part of it, you know, and then it was said, my dad's now separate from the family, but my mum's still drinking with Uncle Pat and her wife. And one night, uh, my mum used to give me sleeping tablets. Like it's in my docs. I've got all my docs files. And it literally says, I've I've told docs, my mum's giving me sleeping tablets to make me sleep. He says, oh, he's hyperactive and I need to keep him calm. But it's through one of these pill stages where I'm abused at nine. Luckily for me, I guess, there was a lot of promiscuity up to that main assault. That, that, that assault was very brutal. And to be honest with you, at nine years old, I didn't quite comprehend what had happened to me. I just knew it was hurt. And I remember the... The physical aspects of what what happened as well but i was moved to my dad's at the age of 10. my mum sent me to live with my dad he now moved to the central coast in gosford and for the first three years of living with my dad i went to a public school called brisbania and he lived on the ocean and my dad was never present so i had a lot of time to myself although i didn't get fed well and i was always scared to death of him there was some good times in the sense that there was near the ocean i could go fishing but school was kind of difficult. I, I, I had a problem with wetting the bed and we didn't where we lived in, it was the oldest house on the Central Coast, so we didn't have a toilet. We had a toilet that gets emptied and we had uh, water that was like an urn, you know, like a copper urn had to heat up. So he would be home for dinner and he had a girlfriend and her three kids, so I was living with them. But she ended up leaving one day. Like the violence was just so bad in that house and like, Mary, I'm glad she got out. Like the best, I wrote in my book, if, I, if you ever read this, Marion, it was the best thing you ever did to get out of that household, you know, and take your three kids with you. I always got dinner with my dad, but my dad had a, a very cruel side to him. Like he would make me something like uh, steak and kidney or cabbage or things that he knew I didn't eat. And then he would stand above me screaming to eat them, you know. And um, so through, I was very skinny, uh, underfed, and I was smelling a lot. So that caused a lot of school problems. Why were you smelling? Were you not bathing? So I would get up in the morning. He went to work at five o'clock. 
So he would drag me out of bed at five o'clock and literally scream at me the whole time. You do this on purpose. I know you do. I never went to bed until after the assault from Uncle Pat. That's when it started. The hot water didn't heat up early in the morning. So you had to turn the urn on. It was like an urn thing. It was like a copper thing we had. And you turn it on and then it comes out. And so it'd be a cold shower in the morning. So I'd be very scarcely washing, you know, while he's screaming at me. And it wasn't like a proper shower, you know, where I'm all soaked up and washed off. So even though I'd had that shower and put on my clothes, which were never washed or, you know, was, I only had the two pairs of clothes, it would, um, I would go to school smelling. And kids used to sit next to me and go, oh, you stink. And the other thing they used to do, I don't know why, but, well, I do now. I had PTSD and I didn't know that's what it was. But kids would clap and I would jump out of my skin. And yeah. kids found it funny to walk up behind me at school and clap. Do you know, can I just say on that, mm-hmm. I joined a Facebook group about uh, two years ago of the school uh, that I went to, and I wrote a little article, and I just said, listen, I want to let people know this is what happened. Um, and then so many people said, I'm so sorry for what they did. I'm glad they did. Yeah, and they said, look, and I said to them, you were children. I said, there's no way you could have known the gravity of what was going on. or You could only see what was present, which was uh, a smelly kid that, you know, just didn't seem to fit in. The neighbourhood that you were in, because Mount Druitt, at least, I guess there's comradeship in that you're surrounded by other kids from similar families. What's going on in Gosford? Do you have any friends? I have one. Um, okay. And I have a girl that I kind of like who I go and visit all the time, Lorana. So I sort of, I used to hitchhike because it was quite spare. Where we were, a lot of distance, unlike Mount Druitt, where everything's sort of together. Uh, so yeah. We used to hitchhike every day down to Saratoga and visit Lorana. And we used to go swimming at the jetty and stuff. And I had a friend named David who lived a little bit further. But that that was pretty much it. And there was also a Baptist church that I used to go to Boys Brigade at. And I, I used to go there. I used to like going there because I was away from my dad and I felt like, you know, it was something to do. Yeah, good on you. That's, you know, you're really having a go. You're not hiding away or leaping straight into crime or, you know, Boys Brigade. That's pretty daggy. That's good <laughs> on you. That's pretty cool, though, for you to for you to do that. Yeah, so that's sort of where it started. But then when Marion left, I did too, but I started running away. You know, um, my brothers came up to visit a couple of times and I ran away to my mum's, but my mum took me back to my dad. Why did she do that? Did she just feel like she couldn't handle the number of kids or? Yeah, and I was hyperactive and my brother and I used to fight a lot, you know, and I used to get in the fights. This is the age where I am starting to fight everybody. I come down to Mount Druitt and people had picked on my brother, so I'd go around and knock on their door and try and fight everybody, you know, and I thought I was a little bit of a gangster back then. And Right, so they'd be causing issues for her around around the town yeah yeah she said i was hyperactive and there probably was i mean after what happened with pat it literally changed the whole dynamic of me yeah my whole being became somebody different i didn't speak near as much as i used to i i didn't trust anybody like everything had a motive like it, it was it was painful because every time anybody said something to me it was like it bounced around in my head for the next 40 minutes like what are they really saying i didn't hear words anymore literally they were now you know, what's behind what they're saying. Did you, were you stealing? A lot of kids in that situation are stealing food and that from yeah, the neighbourhood. Yeah, I used steal kids' lunches. And I, I, I read about it in my book. So what I used to do is I used to ask if I'd go to the toilet in my class and then I'd go to the kids' bags and I'd go through and I would, like some kids, I could never believe, like well, I used to get a Vegemite sandwich in a brown paper bag, very clearly remember it. And I'd see kids that have a little thing with biscuits in it and cheese and like a fruit platter and I'd, I could smell it. <laughs> I could smell the fruit. And uh, so I used to grab one and I'd put it in my shirt and I'd run to the toilet and I'd sit in the toilet and I'd eat it. But I never took it off from one. I used to try and take a little bit so it wasn't too noticeable. But I just kept running away from school. I kept running away from my dad. And so they started locking me up. 
they put me in an institution called Warramai first in Newcastle. And um, the second time I ran away, they put me in a place called Yasma. And then the third time I ran away, I ran away with my brother. And uh, this time uh, we went to a pub and one day my brother comes up to me and he says, oh, give me 50 cents. So what we did was when we ran away from my dad, we sold a jar of coins and my brother uh, from Mount Druitt, he broke into all these different houses, but he never stole anything but food and coins. He was mainly after food. Anyway, we get arrested. He asks me for 50 cents. He goes up to the counter and says, can I have a cherry white? He buys the cherry white when he opens up the cash register. My brother just grabs all the notes and runs. My brother's only 11 you know, years old. And he got chased down by these two men. And we're in the middle of the bush. But, but I got away and he didn't. But being the older brother, I, I sort of mostly on back. Like So they called my brother and they caught him in a room and rang the police. And I'm standing outside saying, let my brother go, let my brother go. And they weren't bothering with me. They were just getting my brother, you know. But they ended up taking us both to Yasma. And uh, that's when I got sentenced. We both got sentenced to go to a home called Reby in Campbelltown. But then for some reason, they sent me to Derek Boys' home, which is older boys' where older boys were, because they wanted to separate siblings back then. Isn't that awful? Yeah. How old were you by this stage? I'm 13. The process was very cold. I, I remember they brought us up to from Yasma to Gosford, and we sat. they took us to the docs office. We sat in docs office all day. Then when we got to court, my dad walks in with a suit and a tie. Oh, these kids, they're such a trouble, Your Honour. You know, and he, like, the whole words coming in his mouth is just so much bullshit. And we, you know, you got us two who are, like, snarling almost at him, growling, and, you know, like. So he's speaking against you instead of in support of you. Yeah, that's right. He, he became the victim in court, and we became these sort of, like, two bad little boys that needed to be made good. And, uh, and that's not what was really going on, you know. And uh, so they convicted him to six months, and they convicted me to a general, which is four and a half months to three years, depending on your behaviour. Derek, I can't even begin to tell you it was the most, it was like being in the army, Derek, you know, you marched everywhere, like it was, it was just a horrible place to be for any child. And I mean, I was in with kids that did murders, you know, armed robberies, uh, breaking inners and good old Glenn and I, well, I ran away from home. There was no actual crime. I just, that's my crime was run, it's called uncontrollable. It was literally called a charge back then, uncontrollable. So a lot of boys in there were being molested by the officers. Uh, not me. I was being molested by an older boy. So at night time, we, we slept in dormitories and there were six sections, one, two, three, four, and five, and six. One was for the good boys, six was for the bad. I was in six. And uh, what happened was I got up, I'd only been there a little while. I got up in the night time and you had to stamp your foot behind your bed, then stand at ease. And you had to wait until the dog box officer looks up. And then when he looks up at you, he gives you the nod and you can go. It took about 15 minutes before he, they were just pricks. They let, they knew you were there, but they just, that, that's the power they had, you know. Then when I got to the ablutions, what they call ablutions, the toilets, I was standing at the trough and I turned around and this big kid standing right there. And um, he put it on me right there and I managed to get away from him, but he kept trying and there was an officer watching. Like I know he saw the whole of what went on. And then when I went back to my bed, I went through something that I don't really want to get talking about, but he, he did some stuff to me. But, you know, the real cruel part of it was the next morning I got up early to try and get my sheets changed, right? And as I walked back into the um, dormitory, all the kids started blowing sucks at me, which is a, they had a language called Derek slang. It's different slang that they use in the home. And one of those slangs was going, which meant sucko, sucko. And like all these kids are blowing sucks at me for being raped. And I'm like, I cannot believe that that's what's going on. But, but it did. Luckily for me, this old, um, older Indigenous boy 
stood up for me. Um, I, I, I tried to fight. I was a fighter, right? I just d- didn't have it in me. I was a little tiny boy. I looked like a girl. I was a pretty boy. Um, but every time someone put on me, I just chopped in. Um, but they, literally one of those could put their hand on my head and hold me kind of thing, you know what I mean? That's how little of a threat I was. But I tried. I, I even hit one guy with a chair, like from behind, right up, and went whack and hit him with a chair, but I just couldn't overpower them. They were bigger and stronger. Until this indigenous boy stands up one day and he puts his hand on my head and he says, this little fella here has got more fucking ticker than every one of you guys in here. He said, he's half your size, he's half your age, but he has a crack. And uh, he said, and then he said, anyone fucking puts their hands on this kid again, I'll fucking deal with him. And from that day on, nobody hurt me. But it took fucking three months of that shit before someone said enough. Uh, and nobody went near me from that day forth. They didn't become my friend either. You know, they just stopped. And, um, and that's all I wanted. It was a miracle because I, I tell you now, I don't know how much more of it I could have dealt with. I, it, it was relentless. It never stopped. It was like I, I get in the shower and they'd run up and they'd grab me and they'd touch me and they just kept putting hands on me all the time. People had their hands on me because I looked like a little girl. So to them, I was like this pretty little girl. You know, I had long, pretty blonde hair. I looked like a little girl. And it wasn't that shaved my hair off. I literally got all my hair shaved off and, you know, I tried everything I could to look like a boy, but I just didn't. I was a pretty little boy. How long did you end up doing at Derek Boys Home? I did four months, four and a half months at Derek. That's good though, right? Because as you said, you could have done three years. So your behaviour must have been excellent. Again, you're good in these situations, aren't you? You choose, you've got a a brain in your head. Yeah, I've always been fairly switched on in that. But yeah, I didn't get into any trouble with Derek. But when I got out of Derek, my dad picked me up from Derek. Um, The day I got out, I got back to Gosford. Literally the minute we got away, I ran away again. And, um, but this time I ran away to Docks. I, I went to Docks in Mount Druitt um, and I met a guy there named Brian Hubble. And I said, look, I said, I don't want to go back to Derrick or Penang or Tamworth or any of these institutions keep sending me to and I don't want to live with my family. I'm sick of being fucking hurt, mate. Again, good on you. I mean, you know, you'd hope these days that they'd go, why do these kids keep running away? Yeah. But good on you for having a little bit of faith left in you to run to them and say, help me. But that didn't work too well out. So what happened was, they found a foster family for me that lived in Mount Druid in Blackett. The problem was that the house that they sent me to, one boy had already been, they had multiple foster kids there before. One of them had been shot dead at Emerton in 1979 by police. Then they had two other kids. They had one girl who was molested in the laundry. Um, so they had nine men living in that house, nine adults, sorry, in that house, three adult men in my bedroom, two of them which had prior convictions for sexual assault, for raping, and one of which was raping a two-year-old child. Oh my God! It's the it's the subject now of the law case. Uh, I'm taking docs to court around this. It's all the, all everything I said. Uh, the upside to what I say is it's all proven. Everything that I've been said has been found guilty in courts. That's unbelievable. That's the environment they placed you in. That's right. And I spent the whole time there being harassed by Les Les Carter. He was the guy in the bed next to me. I woke up one night and he's you know touching me in my sleep. And um, so I only stayed there for about four months and I go back to my mum, but my mum's now shacked up with a drunk, another drunk. We go to South Australia with her and um, the day we arrive in South Australia, my mum and him have a punch on me in a caravan park and being the bigger brother, I jump in trying to fight the man that's fighting my mum, but my mum turns on me. So the fight becomes against them versus me and my brother. They kick me out and they send me back to my dad, right, who agrees to meet us at the bus terminal in Oxford Street in Sydney, right? We get there, my brother and I get off the bus, we walk behind my dad, my dad's walking and then he turns around to me and says, where are you going? You're not fucking coming with me, mate, fuck off. 
And um, and so my younger brother, who I always have felt this anger at him for not coming with me, but I'm glad he didn't. But he went with my dad, and um, that's pretty much where my journey begins into King's Cross, really. So what are you, 14 or 15 at this stage? You just turned 14. Just turned 14. So what happened was I, I'm at Oxford Street, and I get I didn't even know about King's Cross, really. That This man comes and sits down beside me, right? He's a big bloke. His name's Terry. He's a butcher, right? He says, oh, where you going, mate? What's happened? You know, do you want something to eat? And he feeds all that kindness to me, you know, and I'm like, okay. He said, I'll give you somewhere to stay. And I'm like, oh, thank you very much. So what do you mean, though? I mean, you, what, you're a random 14-year-old boy sitting on a seat on Oxford Street and a man knows to come and sit next to you just because you're alone and I suppose you looked scared, daunted, nervous. Yeah, I was crying. Oh, you were crying? Yeah, I was absolutely shattered. I didn't know where to go. I just knew that. The only options I had left to me were boys' homes, and I didn't want to do that anymore. I, I, foster care abused me. Boys' homes had abused me. I've been abused in my own family home. I, like, I didn't feel like I was safe anywhere, and I'm sitting there crying because I just felt rejected by my dad. And more, I was more upset with my brother uh, that he didn't come with me. Like We were so close, you know, and he just went with my dad. He didn't even look back. He just kept walking. And But he was 12 years old. Like you know, I don't blame him, but this guy lures me back to his house but I, I somehow something in me twigs that this isn't right. And I say, listen, I don't want to come here, mister, and I go to go. He grabs my arm and there's a bag in my hand and he managed I managed to shake free of him and I ran. I ran all the way to ran all the way to Central Station. I caught the train to Mount Druitt Station and then it, I got the last train back from Mount Druitt. So I walked from Mount Druitt all the way up to Blackett to where my foster parents place was, but I was too scared to go inside. And I sat on the front step and I had a smoke. I was smoking cigarettes. And um, then one of the other foster kids walks out and says, oh, guess who's out the front here, Fisher? Because they never called me Glenn. They always called me Fisher. You know, Fisher's out the front. But they, they don't let me come back. They say, no, you can't stay here. So they take me to the train station, give me $5, and ring up a refuge in King's Cross. And that's where I end up catching the train to um, King's Cross and land in this refuge. They sent you to King's Cross? They sent me there, yeah. 14. Yeah. So the funny thing is when I first arrived on the streets of the cross, I remember saying to myself, this is fucking it. I'm not living with no one anymore. No one's telling me what to do anymore. I'm my own little man. I've had a fucking gutful. You know, there's like this wind inside me. And I remember walking up the streets and it was full of the weird and the wonderful. You know, it was full of strip clubs and brothels and motorbikes and prostitutes. And I remember them saying, hello, little fella, you want to come with me? Like play, you know, they thought it was all cute because I was so little. And Yeah, and there's lots of people there who have been there since they were kids and they seem to have survived and made lives for themselves and yeah lots of the women specifically uh looked after me they like i was their little brother like they fed me they really did they cared for me a lot and i managed to get myself into this little group of street kids but the problem was there was a group of predators that ran a refuge in king's cross five of them rob blackmore and simon davies were the founders of that refuge and bob hawke was on the committee of that refuge but what happens before that refuge is i'm living with this man right who's a pedophile how that comes about was I'm playing the pinballs one day and this guy comes up and puts the money next to me on the machine. He goes, oh, are you winning, buddy? I said, oh, kind of. He goes, you look hungry. I said, I'm fucking starving. He said, oh, there's a restaurant up here called the Castorio. He said, let's go down and get you a feed. And he, was, he wasn't he was a lot older than me. He was about 28, you know, so I didn't think like, you know, he looked like a street person to me. And so I trusted him. I thought, oh, this is really nice. You know, he buys me this feed. Then he tells me where he lives and we go down there and we smoke pot, you know, and I'd never smoked it before. And I remember being so smashed from this pot that I crashed out for the night. When I woke up in the morning, there was this letter and it said he worked in their sex shop called the Erotic Boutique. If I ever need anything, come up and see him. And nothing happened. I thought, okay, nothing too bad. 
but he was a pedophile. And then what happened was about a week after that, I was hanging with the street kids. We lived in a squat called the Manning Street Squat, where all us kids used to stay. And one night, it was about 11 o'clock at night, a big fight ends up on the street between all the bikers and the doormen. And being a kid, I, I was drawn to this fight. Like, oh, fight, fight, fight. So I'm standing there watching it. But this fight was more violent than anything I'd ever seen. Like, I, I won't even describe it. It was that violent. This man puts his hand through and reaches me out from the crowd and says, get out of you, little boy, and, you know, fuck off. And I'm, I'm white like a ghost. Like, what I'd just seen was some of the most vicious things I'd ever seen. You know, I'm sure someone died. That's how vicious what I'd seen happen. Um, and so I didn't know where to go. And I didn't want to go to the squat because Manning Street squat was an old convent. And it was very dark and scary without other kids. So I went down to this predator's place. And anyway, he he starts putting it on me, you know, starts trying to, and it starts very slowly, the, can I just touch you, or can I, you know, I don't want to go graphic. Then I meet this beautiful girl, right, at the train station one day, her name's Linda Kirby. It, it, that's the book that I've written, it's all about, it's dedicated to her. She becomes my girlfriend, right? How old was Linda? Fifteen. Fifteen. And was she also living on the streets? Yes, she was a street kid like me. How did Linda end up there on the on the streets? Um, so Linda and her friend one day came down the cross. She was a runaway too. You know, she kept running away from home like most of us. Um, she ran into me and another boy, my best mate, and um, we just started hanging out together on the streets. But why, why was she running away from home? Similar story? Or? I don't know. So that's something we never spoke about. We just attracted the broken, the maladjusted, the insecure. They all sort of drew into this one place, but nobody ever talked about what got them there. We just lived in the moment. I'm in the park one day with all my friends and these two little schoolgirls walk into the park and all these men just parade, like instantly drawn to these two little girls. One particular one, his name's Richard West, he's wearing a leather jacket, looks like one of those sort of Oxford Street men, you know, that wear that kind of leather stuff. I walk up to him and I, I, I'm good at defending other people, just never myself. And I jump in the middle and I said, what are you doing, mate? Get away from these little girls. And he said, oh, I'm a counsellor at the refuge in the cross here. I run a refuge down here with three other blokes before other blokes. The long story short is I won't let him touch these girls, go anywhere with these girls. And I say, I'll go. He wanted to drive them down and take me in the car too. And I said, that's not happening either. So I said, we'll walk there. And to Liverpool Street. So me, about 20 other street kids, and these two little girls walk all the way down behind this counsellor. And they take me to a refuge called the Homeless Children's Association on Liverpool Street, which was run by five men and a woman. The five men were pedophiles and the woman was complicit in that abuse. And yeah, my girlfriend comes into that refuge with me. The whole time I'm there, that's where I really went through a lot of abuse. Four of those five men abused me. The first time I was um, abused was by Simon. He got me drunk one night. He used to let me sit in the office playing guitar, drinking, and another pedophile named Paul Jones turned up and gives me a tablet called Mandrakes. I wake up in the morning and I'm naked in his bed. And um, I got out of bed. I got dressed really quickly. I was so embarrassed. I was so angry. And, uh, and I remember running downstairs, and as I came out the door, I said to Grant Morris, I seen Grant first, I said, Simon raped me last night. And he looked at me horrified, and he said, what? He said, oh, Glenn, can we, don't tell anyone, he said, I'll meet you tonight at this cafe, and we'll have a talk about it. Then that day, all day, I was sitting up the park with all the other kids, because we used to sit outside this wall near a pinball parlor called Slots, and I was with my girlfriend, Linda, and she said, something's wrong, what's wrong? And I said, nothing, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. Then that night I go and I meet Grant Morris and he's with another woman that worked at the refuge. She's a sexual assault counsellor named Annie Crow. And she sits me down and she says to me, Glenn, you're over your acting. She says, Simon loves you. And then Grant turns around and says, this is how King's Cross works. She said, don't you understand? He said, every one of us has a boy and every boy has a guy that looks after him. This is normal. And then like Simon, they, 
by the time it's finished, they've talked me out of doing something about it and into believing that I'm in someone loves me, you know, someone cares about me. I've got a girlfriend, but in my head now I'm I'm fucking confused. Yeah. After the refuge, they close the refuge. Um, the judge that runs the refuge, they he puts me into the custody, his court puts me into the custody of my abuser. I'm released by that court into the custody of Simon, his mum and dad and two sisters. I'm living with him after the refuge in his house in Summer Hill, continuing to be abused. And the person that sticks up for me is his bloody sister. And they were the ones that went up one day and said to their parents, what is this little boy doing sleeping in Simon's room? This isn't fucking right. Oh, my God. So how long were you with Simon Davies and his family? Um, For about five months. And then where? Uh, to the street. And then um, my girlfriend, one day there's a... Like these men go around the street looking for a little girl to have sex with, right? So they talk Linda into coming to get some drugs, you know, and they're just going to have a party. But what actually happens is they give her heroin and then two men sexually abuse her and rape her and she dies. You know, after she died, it crushed me. And what actually happened was I ran into the two men that ran the refuge, Simon Davis and Grant Morris, in the street opposite the train station. I walked up to them and I said, one day I said, I'm going to tell the world what you did. Did you know what had happened to Linda when it happened? No, I didn't know until after she was dead. Oh, my God. Were you still together then? No. We just split up about three months before. She started using heroin with some older street kids. So I walked up to two of my abusers and I said to them, I said, one day I'm going to tell the world what you did. I said, one day I'm going to write a book. And I said, one day I'm going to put you fuckers in jail. And he laughed in my face and he said, you're a heroin addict. He said, you'll be dead by the age of 21. And he said, you're illiterate. You can't even read and write. How are you going to write a fucking book? The sad part to that is, mate, for the next 35 years, I was a heroin addict, in and out of jail, you know, like just a mess. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When the refuge ended, I started using heroin. And I remember when I got to around 19 or 20, I started getting really angry. I started remembering what had happened to me and I felt gullible. I felt angry. I felt fucking, I felt violated. I felt everything you could feel that was anger. And that just kept festering, you know, and festering. And I ended up meeting another beautiful girl and we had a little daughter and um, I tried to make a life for myself. I kept getting on methadone programs, but they only were six months back then. So you get, they'd put you on it and made you have it three times worse than it was and then chuck you off it again and I ended up going to jail for armed robberies. Like it was insane. Like my whole life spiraled. What did you end up going to jail for, for the first time? I got charged with extortion, demand money with menaces, assault and robbery and armed robbery. Were you extorting a former predator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a pedophile. His name was Leslie Leo Press. He actually got murdered uh, through the court case. Someone bashed him to death with a hammer. There was another guy that was extorting him, right? What actually happened was someone really was extorting him. And then one day this guy who's a friend of mine says to me, I've got weekend detention. Would you mind... Um, stopping and picking up something for me. And I said, yeah. So I went up there stupidly and I said, oh, my, I nearly said the guy's name. He's told me to come up and pick this envelope off you. And uh, he said, no worries, come back at two o'clock. And I made it worse for myself. So when I come back at two o'clock, I saw two detectives coming from both sides of the street and I just legged it. And I ran up this car park for ages and half the chats was chasing me, like builders and bloody everybody decided to chase me. Oh, stop him, stop him. And finally I get arrested and charged with extortion to my money with menaces. And then one day the police arrived at my house the next day, midway through the trial, and they said, um, he's been murdered last night. And he said, we want to know where you were. They checked my car, my tools, my everything. And you know what? The time that he got murdered, I was picking up my methadone the exact same time, about fucking five hours away. Thank God. Thank God. God. So you went to jail for the extortion or attempted extortion? I went to jail for the armed robbery. For the armed robbery. So I, I held a knife up on a priest. What actually happened was I tried to take my life. I went into a church one night and I, I was walking past and I heard all this music playing and I sat out the front for ages, then everybody left. So I walked into the church and I literally tried to hang myself on this thing that was in the church and this man comes running back in and he lifted me up and like literally lifted off and then this other guy comes in, he's a priest, and then they got me down and they helped me out for the night. Then the next morning when I slept the night in the diocese and then the next morning they wake me up and he and I said, look, I've got to go. I'm a heroin addict. I'm hanging out. I've got to go. And he said, I'll give you $50. I said, oh, okay. He said, no, I can't give you $50. No, I will give you $50. Then he said, oh, my conscience won't allow me to give you $50. And then I pulled out a knife and I, I just lost it. Look, I did a lot of things that were wrong. I, you know, I was selling heroin. I was robbing people. Um, I was doing some bad stuff at the end there. I, um, I was walking up the street and just king eating people and taking stuff. That's how bad I got. And I'm so sorry that I did those things. I really am. It's not who I am in my nature. Jail saved my life, believe it or not. When I got into jail, I suddenly had a roof over my head. Didn't have any bills. I, I didn't have to worry. I, had th I fed three times a day and I had a hundred mates. Yeah. So I started training everything. I started doing a school certificate and in my mind all the time, I'm going to write this fucking book. I'm going to tell the world what they did. 
and I started writing it in jail. But then all of a sudden one day I thought to myself, if anyone finds this, I'm fucked. I cannot write this book in jail, you know, not and not be truthful. Good point. Um, so I stopped writing it. But then when I got out of, uh, when I got to the end of my sentence, I had parole over my head, and they wouldn't let me out unless I had a job and somewhere to go. Now I've come from the street. I've got no friends, no family. There's no chance that's going to happen for me. So I just concede I'm going to do my time until my parole runs out. The Christians, some Christian people, believe it or not, were coming into the jail. Uh, it ga- gave me a job, so they gave me somewhere to live and a job as a carpenter doing carpentry. And uh, so I stayed with them for about three months. And then I ended up meeting a beautiful woman, and we ended up having four kids together. And in between all that, I started changing my life. But I always struggled with my addiction through it. And me, when I went to jail, it was just like a time warp. Like, I stopped. I did my time, then I came out. Nothing changed. I was the same person. I was fit. I was healthy. I wasn't smoking. I wasn't taking drugs. But all those problems were still with me. You know what I mean? It, it didn't stop anything going on in my head. So when I came out of prison, I was big, fit, strong, with the same anger. Now I was more capable, if that makes sense. I really think that there should be a transition program from prison after you get out of prison, and that's where that sort of counselling can take place, where there's a safer... Um, you know, and then when they're identified, they could be moved to a different spe- section where they can focus in on that stuff, you know, because it eats away at a person, you know, and, and they do, you become angry. And uh, there's a lot of angry men walking around who have been through stuff that are never going to say that's what happened. You know, I know that was me. For so many years, I held this guilt, this shame, this anger, all these different feelings, but I used to keep it my dirty little secret. I don't know if I ever would have spoken had the Royal Commission turned up at my house and in front of my partner, they said, you've been identified by multiple people as a victim of sex crimes. And I was like, what the fuck? Did they? They said that in front of your partner? Yeah, in front of my wife. It was like, wow. And like, you know, like she's a good person, but you know, the way that could unfold for many others might not be as same, you know? And But I went to rehab and I went, I, when I went into there, I had a counsellor and I said to him, listen, I said, I've never told anyone this before but I've been through some really bad abuse and I think I need some help. It's funny because I was a heroin addict for 35 years and for much of that time I was trying to um, beat my addiction and it wasn't until I went to a rehab for 12 months and I started doing some trauma counseling with a group called SAMHSA that I started to understand that my problem wasn't my addiction, my problem was my head, what was going on in the trauma that I was trying to... Yeah, you were treating that with heroin. Yeah, that's exactly right. At the same time, the police had approached me about going through the Woodrow Commission, all this stuff. So I went through all that and I did 12 months of counselling, of sexual assault counselling. Then when I got out, I did more. I started going to the gym every day for the first year and then one day I went to the police and I said, you need to know, I need to tell you what's going on. I gave them that 75-page statement and I felt like when they took my statement, their arms folded and they're like, yeah, this is a good story, brah, but you know, it seemed a bit far-fetched. They came back to me six weeks later and they said, we've been around the country. We've spoken to probably near 100 children who have been through the cross and every single one of them told your story. Wow. Like literally word for word, for verbatim, you know, like they literally shared your story. So they said, we want to set up a task force called Strike Force Boyd and we want to know if you'd be willing to wear a wire. I, I felt so uncomfortable. I've gone up on the streets in jail, boys home. Like, wear a fucking wire? Are you kidding me? It was a turmoil. Trust me, there was a, and there was this constant turmoil going in with me. Like I've been brought up even by my mother. My mother used to sit me down and said, "Snitches get snitches. Fill kids never fucking dog. Don't you ever dog on anyone." So that's ingrained mm. into my system. But I also grew up learning that rules are: don't fucking hurt kids mm. and don't hurt fucking women. You know what I mean? That civilians are out of out of play, right? I I had to balance the two the, the checks and balances thing in my head. 
the driving force in me, as I said, was the murder of my girlfriend and the injustice around that. The the amount of kids that died, you have no idea how many children under the age of 18 died on the streets of the cross who were either stripping in clubs, working in brothels, uh, or becoming heroin addicts to to feed the other people's pockets, you know? So I, I felt I made a promise and I fucking aimed to keep it. And so I, I said to the police, I'll do it. I said, let's fucking get him. And I had to have this chance meeting with one of my person who abused me when I was a kid. They gave me a phone, all this information, and it took ages to get him on board. Then finally, he rings me up one night drunk and decides he wants to reminisce. And he talked for 45 minutes about stuff he's done to me, stuff he's done to other children, like he was reliving it as he was talking it. And I, and I felt violently ill. And when he hung up, I like, I don't like admitting this, but I break into fucking tears, man, like a child. I just lost the blood. I met him in the restaurant, right? And I arranged to introduce him to a detective who I told was a pedophile who had a boy who's gone back to his mum and dad and needs to get this boy back out of their care into his care, right? And he said, I can help. I can help, he says. We walk into this restaurant. He hands me a piece of paper and slides it across the table, right? I turn it over and on it is two little 14-year-old boys that I knew from the refuge naked, laying on their stomach. And I almost blew it right there. I fucking turned it back over, like snapped it back over and I slid it towards the detective and then I realized what I was doing, pulled it straight back and folded it up and put it in my pocket. Then he says to this detective, he says, we targeted prepubescent children that come from broken homes that no one gave a fuck about. He says this in front of me, right? Mate, I'm telling you, I wanted to jump over and just fucking give it to him. I said, I'm going for a cigarette. I went outside and police rang me straight away because there's coppers everywhere, you know, watching, filming, listening. They talked me through it. I also had a sexual assault counsellor that was working with me right through this process. The police rang me up and they said, Glenn, we've got him. We've fucking got him. That was so big for me. And, um, you know, I ended up one by one. I had to go through 27 years of courts, two royal commissions to get all this right. The first two I got convicted, they got 18 fucking months. I remember standing up and saying, 18 months is, you know what that says to me? It says that my value is worth 18 months. I got more for a fucking armed robbery, you know, and he, he, he's fucking, so what you're saying is it's okay to rape our children, but just don't rob our banks. What a fucking joke. A third one I went through, he got two years, eight months, which was the guy that I wore the wire on. And I thought, fuck this. And then the fourth one, he fled the country, right? He fled to the, uh, to London first. Then he was warned by Scotland Yard that there was a, a red notice on him. So he, he flew to Europe, believing that under the statute of limitation laws in the Netherlands, he could negate all the charges. And he almost fucking did. So what happened was under the statute of limitation laws, a lot of the charges that were against him were no longer valid under statute of limitation laws in their country. So predators have learned that if you go to certain places in Europe, you can use their statute of limitation laws to negate things that they do in our country. It's a fucking joke. Mm. It's a law that needs amending and fast. There was four victims, 18 charges. By the time we got him back from the Netherlands, he'd taken out two of those victims and, and nine of the 18 charges. But I ended up getting him convicted. I got 10-year sentence on him, and uh, he's sitting in jail now. That Last October, I got him put away. So he was the first person that was sentenced under the new sentencing law. So the first three, it was governed by the uh, time of abuse. So I was subjected to the laws governing time of abuse. But the laws changed when COVID came out. The, we, all of us have been polling for years, fighting for years to get these laws changed. So they brought in new sentencing laws, which are around historical abuse. And he was the first high-profile person sentenced under those new laws. And that was very um, a crime against me, the one that he'd done. He took me to a sex shop one night and abused me. 
I remember when I started doing this show and and I'd meet people and they'd say, oh, I was victimised by a couple of people and they'd say, I don't know why. Is it something about me? Is it written on my forehead? Like, was I doing something? And I'd say, well, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know the answer. I'd say, oh, well, obviously not. You know, I knew that didn't make sense. But it took a couple of years before I met the right expert who explained to me, no, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It is that predators take their time and they, in the grooming process, they try a little something and see how a person reacts. And if you're a person who has never been groomed before, you'll react straight away with outrage and with a fuck off kind of reaction, you know. But if your boundaries have already been broken down by a previous predator, you'll let things through, you'll let things pass. And so the next predator will go, oh, okay, this is interesting. I'll push a little bit harder and see how far I can go. And that's why some people, unfortunately, can be victimised by more than one person. Boys' homes were worse in the sense that there was nowhere to go. There was no reprieve. There was no, it was relentless. On the streets, it was more cunning. So the way they abused me was by saying things like, Simon Davis bought me a new bike. He used to say to me, you are so talented, you know, like on the guitar, you are such a gifted kid. You've got all these gifts. He used to dress me up with words and I was bored into it. You know, like I, I looked up to this fucking idiot. I believed that he was something special. He took me to the hotel, uh, Hilton Hotel once to meet Bob Hawke and all these different people. And I remember him parading me around like dressed and he's got his hand on my head saying, oh, this young fellow, he's come from the worst stuff. You should see what's happened to his mum and his dad and all this stuff. And But what he was doing was getting money from these big wigs who were just handing him money, pissed, you know, hand over fist, to help our street kids while pissing it up a wall. None of it went to us. And you know what I, I the other thing I always think of is we in Australia are really good at pointing the finger at other countries and other cultures and say, yeah. oh, yeah. in this country, you know what they do? They uh, call themselves an orphanage or they call themselves a refuge, but what they're really doing is taking advantage of kids and they're really pedophiles. And I always think it's really important to say, guess what, Sydney, Adelaide too. I lived on the streets of Adelaide for about 18 months. I was a break dancer, so I, I, I used to do break dancing and I went up to Adelaide when Linda died. And that's where I got told Linda had died. One of my friends came up to find me and um, a lot of the predators from the cross moved up to Adelaide because the, the heat was coming on um, in the cross. So they started moving to Adelaide where they found that Hindley Street and Rundle Mall was a, 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 a smorgasbord of children. You know, they got these pinball parlours, they had this big pinball parlour on Hindley Street and it was just like, and they had they used to take them down to this place in the Torrance. There was um, public toilets in the Torrance. It was very well known to street kids back then that that's what they were doing. When I researched people, various people, um, like, say, the the guys who killed Anita Cobby. So Les Murphy was at the refuge. His lawyer just rang me. I was going to – Les Murphy is exactly who I was thinking about because I know that Les worked on the wall quite a bit. Yeah, well, Les also lived in the refuge. He was immersed at the refuge. Monkey Jamison was also at the refuge, the guy that killed Janine Balding. He, he used to get bullied on the street. He never fitted in anywhere. But Les Murphy, he worked at Costello's. He worked on the wall, and um, and he was being subjected to this abuse all the way through. It, there's no doubt in my mind that this is one thing's led to the other because what it does is it, it takes out the boundaries. You know, when you've been abused and been through all that stuff, the boundaries of sex become confused you know and and i have no doubt in my mind that that's what's happened with a lot of these people who have gone on to be serious offenders i did an car and affair interview and there was a journalist two journalists that were doing a three thousand word story on my case after the sentencing and it got shut down they were trying to write that that refuge has led some of the worst serial offenses in the in the country 
his lawyers actually contacted me. So he wanted Les Murphy asked to ring me, right? And I, it was a moral conundrum for me because I said yes first. I said, I will help him out because I know what happened. And I thought, I can't do it. But I will add on that is that I've been thinking about it a lot because I know that a, his older brother went through the jail system and, and he was pretty much a sheep in the whole thing. Les was the youngest one. He, and I also know what he went through the cross and I knew how gullible and easily led he was. But having said that, that's a heinous crime. It's a very heinous crime, and and my moral compass has to say to myself, I have daughters. You know, I have three daughters and three granddaughters. You know, and if anyone done that to my child, I wouldn't care what they've been through. Although I always always believe there's either inherent good or inherent bad. It's never been a a, a thought process for me. It's always been mindful of me to stop that generational abuse. I watched it happen with my mum, us, and and you know, and I'm seeing it in other parts of the family. It's important that we we educate and that we stop generational abuse. I have had a propensity to violence in my life, but it's always been to males. And it's males that I've always gone for. Um, I've I've got a very protective nature for women and children, although I've had my moments where my violence has been verbal. And and I've learned now through rehab that you can be just as violent with your mouth as you can be with your hands. And with men, I was violent with my hands. With wife, I, I could be violent with my mouth. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I got into rehab they asked us to do a domestic violence course. And I was like, you're fucking kidding. Like, I, I don't need to do domestic violence course, mate. I, I don't hit women. And then after doing that course, I was like, fuck, man, I hit every single category. I'm domestic violent. And it's all because of what I say. I, I knew how to dress someone down using my words. I know as a kid growing up that my mother and dad hit me a lot, but it was the things that said to me that have stuck. You know, like you're stupid. You know, no one wants you. You're a fucking useless piece of shit. Why don't you go and jump off? Because things that they would say that just, you know, and there's a lot more education needed. And I think a lot of it should start in prison. So you wrote Predator's Paradise. When did you write that? So I started writing it a decade ago, but I actually published it in 2019. Are you at the end of the legal fight against your predators now? So there's three more. Two of them have died. There's one more that we're going to find. Is that, that's the Richard West one. Um, they, the police have not been able to find him. So if anyone in Australia knows where Richard West is, please contact the Sex Crimes Parramatta Strike Force Boyd. How old would Richard West be now, roughly? So, 84, so 40 years ago, he'd be about 80. All the rest have been convicted and done with. And now at the moment I'm going through litigation. I'm taking New South Wales to court for putting me in foster care with two pedophiles, putting me in the dairy, all these different places. They kept everywhere I went, their fingerprints are in it. Yes, good. Um, and I, I, they need to be held accountable. Thank you to our guest today, Glenn Fisher. There's a link in our show notes to help you buy a copy of Glenn Fisher's book, Predator's Paradise. We've shared a photo on our social media of a man New South Wales police would like to speak to. If you have any information about this story, you can call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.